Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. If I'm being honest, I don't like Easter all that much. <laughs> Not the Christ being raised from the dead part. We love that part. It's some of the, the churchified production part of what we find Easter to often be. I think there's some kind of unspoken expectation that today of all days, we should feel all of the feelings that we tell ourselves in all the rest of the year that they're not, it's okay to not feel those things. But whatever those things are, we should feel them today of all days. But to feel it and to feel it with any authenticity means that I have to kind of willfully ignore all of the things going on in the world that resurrection was supposed to solve, but it hasn't. This is the tension that we feel on a morning like today, a morning when resurrection and new life and new creation and new heavens are supposed to be breaking into the world and then we look around at the world and it doesn't feel all that much different, does it? So we tried today to be extra happy. <laughs> Even though we're tired and our kids aren't listening and their clothes are itchy or all of our married friends with kids have lunch plans already. And so part of that frustration, part of why I struggle with Easter is because for so long, I've thought about today as a kind of glad reunion, a kind of happy reunion with Jesus, a day when I try to make sense of the world as I know it in light of resurrection. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of our time today, is talking about this, this problem that Easter, that Resurrection Sunday offers to us when we try to make sense of the world in light of resurrection. Again, because if we're honest, we can't. The world as we know it is too full of pain and too full of loneliness and depression and cancer and loss and things that just make us go, this isn't right. There is no making sense of that in light of resurrection, at least not in ways that are entirely honest. It turns out that waking up on Easter Sunday to a world that doesn't look the way you expect it actually puts you in pretty good company. In our gospel reading today, for Mary, for Peter, for the faster, more infit disciple. <laughs> Don't you love that? Like, that's something I absolutely would have done if I wrote the book of John. And not only is he faster, but he's also the disciple whom Jesus loved. <laughs> so in our gospel today, for Mary, for Peter, for the disciples, Easter begins in the dark. In their imagination, Jesus dying was not out of the realm of possibilities. A prophet in their world and in their minds can be true and still die. So they're grieving, but they're not confused. They're not at odds with what's happened on Friday. Their only concern is that they might be found guilty by association. Prophets die all the time. That's nothing new. But then Mary comes with this news that the stone has been rolled away and they've taken Jesus' body and she doesn't know where they've put it. 
Notice that here Mary, she actually gives an interpretation to what she's seen. An interpretation of tragedy. She comes upon this empty tomb and her response is, they've taken him. There's no evidence that that's true. But she takes this moment of confusion and she turns it into tragedy, even though she has no idea what's really happened. And so the disciples run to the tomb, and John is, again, careful to point out that he beats Peter in this foot race. They look into the tomb, finding the burial clothes empty, and none of them know what to make of it. So what do they do? They return to their homes. They return. They go back to the world as they've known it to the same structures and they accept the same basic conditions that this is just how the world is. As I just said, their imagination in their world means that a prophet can still be true and he can die. The problem is that in their minds, they still assume that the world that God has made is a world in which death happens, where loss and absence is unavoidable. Jesus' death makes sense to them. It's the empty tomb that leaves them perplexed and confused, as the text says. And so in their perplexity, in their confusion, they return to the world as they've known it. But Mary stays. Mary stands weeping outside the tomb. St. Oscar Romero, he says that there are many things that can only be seen through eyes that have cried. So Mary's given this gift. She's given this gift of tears, and this gift of tears that Mary is given, it actually opens her eyes to new possibilities, to the possibilities that the other disciples couldn't see because they were too busy rushing back to the world as they've known it. And then it says in verse 11 that Mary bends down to see inside of the tomb. Easter, resurrection. If we're to make sense of it, or rather, if we're to let it make sense of us, it requires us to stand in places that we've never stood before. It requires us to warp our perspective, to see the world flush with possibility. But as the text says, we can only see it when we come and we bend down, when we bow ourselves in humility. You can't see what's happening in this new world standing where you've stood. We have tried to make sense of the world as we know it in light of resurrection rather than let the resurrection of Jesus give us an imagination for the new world that could be, a way of seeing the world afresh. A couple months ago, I spent some time in Israel and Palestine. And on one of those days while we were there, we traveled into Palestine. We went into Bethlehem and we visited the Church of the Nativity. This is the church that marks out where the incarnation takes place, where Jesus breaks into the world. And as you walk up to the church, it's not obvious how you get in. It's not easy to see how you make your way inside of this church, this ancient church, because there's no standard-looking door. One of the things that they implemented in the construction of this church is a door that's only about this tall. 
And there's some rumors that, well, people were shorter back then, but that's not the point. The reason it's constructed this way is intentional. It's to say that every person who walks into this space, who walks into the place of the incarnation, the place where Jesus breaks into the world, no one can get into that space without bowing low. They call it the humble door, the door of humility. The proud can't walk into that kind of world, into that kind of space. Everyone who enters must do so with humility. When Mary bends low, she assumes this posture of humility. And as she bends, as she stoops down to the ground, she hears a voice ask her, woman, why are you weeping? Which is a way of saying, show us your pain. Show us what's hurting in you. Rowan Williams, my friend, He teaches us how to recognize saints. And he says this, saints are very definitely not people who have perfect explanations for everything that happens. (laughs) Saints may have their failings, but they're not that annoying. (laughs) Saints are people who don't silence us, but let us speak out of what is most real to us, even if it's painful even if it's challenging. A saint is somebody who says to you, you have God's permission to be yourself, even if that means pouring out the anger and the misery and the guilt and confusion. A saint is somebody who says, let me come with you to where it hurts. So Mary's grief is invited into the tomb. Her grief and her pain and her confusion is welcomed into that place of resurrection, the very place where resurrection happens. Let me see where it hurts, they say to her. It's interesting, her response is she says, they have taken away my Lord. The other disciples, they've seen Mary in her distress. They've seen her in her grief. They've seen the same tears that the angels see. They've come and now they've gone without comforting Mary. She just stays. She stays in her grief. And here Mary gets consolation in the tomb from the messengers of God. And of course, as all messengers of God do, they move toward her pain. Even the resurrected Jesus sees Mary and moves toward her grief. Mary senses this presence behind her as she's talking to these two angels, and the text says that she turned around and she saw Jesus standing there, but that she doesn't recognize him. She sees him, but she doesn't know who he is, which is a sign for us that reality has begun to shift for Mary, that she's seeing something of the new earth, but she doesn't know it yet. And so he asks her, woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And in this exchange with Jesus, where at first she doesn't recognize him, Mary has this moment of coming to herself when he says her name, Mary. And then the text says that she turns, 
But what has she already done? She's already turned toward Jesus. So what is this second turning? What do we make of that? How do we explain that? I think part of what we're meant to see is that even as we turn and face Jesus, our imagination, the way that we see the world and the possibilities of the world as we know it, they have to be turned as well. They have to be conformed to the mind and to the image and the likeness of Christ. And then Mary calls out to Jesus saying, teacher. Now it's interesting, the text never says anything about her reaching out for him, about her trying to grasp or to cling to him. But when she calls out to Jesus, when she says to him, teacher, Jesus' response to her is, don't cling to me. When Mary is calling him teacher, it speaks of her grasp of Jesus, her understanding of Jesus, and her own understanding of herself as Jesus' disciple. It's like Jesus is saying to her, the change that I am trying to bring about is more disorienting than you'll be able to understand if you keep clinging to what you've known. So she goes back and she announces to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. This is part of the transformation that happens in Mary, is that she comes to the tomb asking, where have they taken my Lord? But she goes out announcing, I have seen the Lord. Part of the transformation that happens in her is that she comes to the tomb asking where have they taken my Lord as if Jesus is someone to possess. Tell me where you've taken him and I will take him is her response. But by the end, the witness that she brings to the apostles isn't that I have seen my Lord. It's I have seen the Lord. Jesus is not ours to possess, but he has given himself to us. We can't possess him. If we hear anything on Easter Sunday, it's that we keep trying to invite Jesus into our lives and into our hearts when the reality is Jesus is inviting us into his life, into his reality. But you'll only see it the same way that Mary sees it, through tears. She only gets there by walking through the humble door. By hearing those words, he is not here. Mary is able to see that Jesus is not here, but he's here. He's not just here. He's here. Everything for Mary starts to unravel. For Mary and for all of them, Resurrection Sunday was much more overwhelming than Good Friday. They're used to their prophets dying. They're not used to their prophets' tombs being empty. And what we find is that resurrection isn't really met with gladness at all. Resurrection, it turns out, is not the tidy conclusion to Jesus' story that we make it out to be. Resurrection ends up being the complete undoing of the world as we've known it and the remaking of the world as we understand it. 
If anything, resurrection creates endless new lines of tension for us. There's no joy for the disciples on this day. Jesus is alive. Christ is risen. And now what? (laughs) What Jesus has brought about is something that leaves us perplexed and in a stupor. Even when we're led by the Spirit, even like the prophet Isaiah today who gives us a new vision of a new heavens and a new earth, even when you're led to new visions like that, we can even stare resurrection in the face and still return to our homes, still return to the empty structures of the world completely unchanged. Resurrection means that the world has been joined to God The world has been restored and healed and remade and it is unthinkably good. But we have to stoop low to see it. We have to bow down, go through that humble door, the door of humility, in order to get a glimpse of it. Even through tear-filled eyes can we get a glimpse of what God is doing in this new world. In order to fit through the door of resurrection, the door that God has made possible, we have to bend low in order to get there. And because this world has been joined to God, to live in that world requires us to be disjointed from the world as we've known it. This life, resurrection life, it is more Remember Jesus' words, I've come to give you life and life abundantly, life to the fullest. But it's not just more in the sense of addition of the same kind. It's not life more vivid. It's not life turned up to 11. It's more in the newness of something else altogether. And because it's more, because it's better than we can imagine It means that we can rethink the emptiness of the tomb and the emptiness of our own lives. Again, coming back to that question, how do we make sense of resurrection in light of pain and hurt and our friends dying and cancer winning all the time? We make sense of it in this way that the empty tomb is not a proof of resurrection, as we've often heard. The empty tomb is a sign that Christ is not here, but he's here. He's not here, he is risen, does not mean he's not here, he's there. It doesn't mean that he's not buried here, he's buried somewhere else. What Mary finds out is that He's not here, he's here, means that in whatever you find yourself in, whatever kind of pain and confusion and hurt and suffering and grief, that Jesus is even there. The empty tomb can only be filled with God's glory. And those parts of your life that feel empty and void and meaningless, sometimes those spaces need to be there in order for God's glory to move into your life. God needs emptiness in order to move into the spaces that he needs to be. 
Robert Jensen, someone else who's becoming my friend, literally Father Chris's friend, (laughs) once said, God is roomy. And that's why we need the empty tomb. God doesn't need suffering in your life to comfort you. As we said last week, God doesn't make us sick in order to care for us. That's sick. But even when we find ourselves ill and in grief, there is room in God for your grief. Father Timothy Radcliffe has this talk that he gave to the Congress of Abbots, very official sounding gathering. All these Benedictine monks who serve in these roles in monasteries themselves as monks. And he says this about their work and their vocation, and it says something to us, I think, about our own lives. It says that God's glory always needs a space, an emptiness, if it is to show itself. The emptiness between the wings of the cherubim in the temple, the empty tomb, a Jesus who vanishes in Emmaus, He says to them, I've suggested that if you let such empty spaces be hollowed out in your lives by by being people who are not there for any particular reason, whose lives lead nowhere, and who face your creaturehood without fear, then your communities will be thrones for God's glory. What's he saying? We try to make sense of our world. We tell each other that we need to find our purpose, that our lives need to have some goal. And what he's inviting us to see this morning is that that emptiness of purpose, that emptiness of goal, is exactly where Jesus promises to be. (laughs) That the point is not for us to have some grand purpose. The point is to live our lives before God, to give our everyday, mundane, meaningless Tuesday afternoons and live them before God and let God make sense of us rather than us trying to make sense of the world in light of resurrection. Over the next few weeks here at Sanctuary, we're going to be talking about the emptiness of our lives. Isn't, doesn't that sound like an Easter theme? <laughs> All those spaces in our lives and in the world where God seems to be absent and void, but how those empty spaces are precisely where God does his best work. The tomb is empty. Christ is risen. Is risen Amen. Amen.